Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Filmonomics at Slate It, the podcast series that helps unravel why some movie ideas make it to the screen, while so many others keep languishing on the page. My name is Colin Brown, your podcast host, and as our regular listeners know by now, each of our episodes revolves around an interview I conducted with a battle-tested financier, filmmaker, producer, or packager. All these creative executives are valued members of the Slated community, and they all play a pivotal part in turning promising pitches into viable propositions that others will also buy into and ultimately pay to watch. Now, as a breed, business creative types are alike in so many ways. They are invariably opportunistic by their nature, and almost all tend to declare these days that they are on the prowl for interesting, original, filmmaker-driven material that can be made into cinematic films for the right price. They all talk, too, of keeping their ears, eyes, and guts open for those distinctive filmmaking voices. But what ultimately separates them in this common pursuit is their own individualistic takes on who and what constitutes such filmmaking freshness, and also their different approaches for unearthing and mining such precious resources. This week's guest, Jason Potash, co-founder of Storyboard Entertainment, is a prime example of how different those production paths can be even as they journey towards much the same goal. Like other financing producers, Jason makes a point of seeking out filmmakers who have unusual stories to tell, or unusual ways of telling what might otherwise be typical stories. Writer-directors, in other words, with a singular vision that stands out from the pack. But rather than wait for such talents to be nurtured by others, and then harvest them in their first full bloom of their careers, Storyboard likes to work with budding filmmakers in the very formative stages, and then to grow alongside them as both company and filmmaker. As befits a company whose other co-founder, Paul Finkel, made his own money reinvigorating his family's property management company, it's all about developing projects from the ground up. Both the creative bedrock and the initial substructures that underpin projects early on are critical to Storyboard's construction blueprint, says Jason. When you have the right team, you build that foundation, then you're, you're good to go. But you've got to start right. So I think it's just taking your time and finding the right people, the right mixture of ingredients to get the movie made. And that's sort of what consumes you know, a majority of our time here. Basing a production company around filmmakers on the rise and emerging artists might seem like a risky endeavor. But it also rewards Storyboard with a wellspring of indebted filmmaking talents to keep drawing upon as their careers unfold. In the five years since he and Paul joined forces, Storyboard has already worked with several of the same talents on multiple occasions. Actress-filmmaker Maggie Kiley, actor-director Chris Lowell, and producer-director Austin Redding. Beyond the relationship-building aspect, there is also a shrewd business rationale at play here. As revealed in last November's eye-opening slated data infographic on the life cycle of film careers, writers and directors tend to be at their most profitable during their earlier creative years. It turns out, for example, that the industry likes to throw its money behind those in their 40s, while at the same time largely ignoring directors at the age at which Damien Chazelle made Whiplash, for example, before becoming the youngest winner of the Best Director Oscar this year for La La Land. Such industry blind spots are not reserved just for age, of course. As we also exposed in another infographic for Slated, there is a systemic gender bias also at play across the industry that cuts across all age lines, an imbalance that overlooks the often superior investment returns that women professionals on both sides of the camera generate in the marketplace, as compared with their male counterparts. 
To its credit, Storyboard has managed to achieve a gender parity that is rare even within the independent filmmaking world. Five of the ten films that Jason produced have been made by women directors, a result of a determination to judge filmmakers on their talents rather than succumb to industry baggage. And for that, he can thank the American Film Institute for helping to open his eyes. When I started producing, the first thing I made was through AFI's Directing Workshop for Women in 2010. And back then, I was given a lot of the facts of why the program existed, what the program was, the ratio of, of male to female filmmakers, uh, and the staggering fact that the amount of films made every year by female filmmakers is very minimal and never really changes. And when it does, it moves at a very slow rate. And that was sort of my entry into understanding you know, gender and filmmaking, how films are getting made, why they're getting made. And I never really understood, you know, why one film would get made by, by a male filmmaker versus a female filmmaker. And that was never something that we cared about. We only want to be involved with talented people. You know, their background is really relevant to whether or not we believe they can tell a great story. So we've never looked at it in terms of gender or, or race or background or any of those things. It's if someone comes in and tells us a story that we, that moves us, that we think we want to get involved with then we're involved with it. And it just so happened that, a lot of the films that we've been involved with have been by female filmmakers. And I think that everyone deserves the same chance of getting a movie made and the same support from uh, a passionate producer. And um, that's just kind of how it's fallen for us lately. And, you know, we love everybody. So it's been really great. Jason and Paul Finkel launched Storyboard Entertainment in 2012. Their first film together was the romantic comedy Brightest Star, a feature-length expansion of the Tribeca Film Festival short film winner Some Boys Don't Leave, that had starred Jesse Eisenberg and was produced by Jason. Brightest Star ended up being picked up for theatrical release in the US by Gravitas Ventures and handled in other media and elsewhere by Warner Brothers Digital and Paramount International. But despite that sales success, going from short to feature-length film based on the same story premise was not in the company's original script for itself. While the founding duo had intended to start out with the same filmmaker, it was with a different film project in mind. When we made Some Boys Don't Leave, we never intended on making a feature length. In fact, we thought we would launch and start the company with other films that we were working on. And uh, after taking it out and after the response that it received, we really heard that people were really interested in the feature length. So we, we sort of moved our focus to doing that. And that happened to be our first film. And the movie that we thought was going to be our first film ended up being our third movie. So you never know. A lot of times you just have to stay malleable and, and listen and, um, and follow kind of the guidelines of what the industry is looking for and how they can help in your quest to get movies made. And in doing so, we were able to get one movie made, then another movie, and then our third film happened to be the first movie we thought we were going to get made. The director and co-writer for both those short and long interpretations of that same breakup story was Maggie Kiley, one of eight directors selected for that AFI directing workshop for women that was mentioned earlier. She was also one of 20 filmmakers chosen for the Fox Global Directors Initiative. Her short film takes place almost entirely in an apartment corridor, where Jesse Eisenberg's heartbroken character mopes around while playing with his tennis ball and coming to terms with the breakup of a former girlfriend, who still cohabits there and is getting on with life around and without him. The feature-length version revolves around the same emotionally hungover character, this time played by Chris Lowell, as he sets out to win back the girl of his dreams 
by trying to become the person she desires. Some Boys Don't Leave is not the only short to have inspired Storyboard into working with filmmakers on their full-length debuts. Two of their other productions, Michelle Morgan's 30-something comedy, LA Times, and The Strange Ones, a dramatic thriller starring Alex Pettifer, were both derived from short films that premiered at the Sundance Film Festival. In each case, these short films drew attention to potentially exciting filmmaking talents in the making, and to the real possibility that audiences were not finished with particular stories, or characters, or even the filmmaking tone. Audiences seemed to be craving more of the same, a desire that in turn creates an industry feedback loop that puts projects on a slightly faster track. Going from short to feature is, is a hard road, um, but it's a very common road because it allows producers, writers, actors, filmmakers, everyone collectively to make something without the burden of an, of an entire feature-length film, which generally costs a lot more money and, and is, needs a lot more resources. And for us, we, we made this short film through AFI's Directing Workshop for Women, so we had the support of AFI in going into it. But I think when we realized it was something special and when we started thinking about how to develop it into something bigger was through the Q&As at the film festivals. So the director and writer and I went around to many of the film festivals that the movie played. And during the Q&As and even afterward, the audience started asking questions that we thought were the makings of something bigger. And it was in those conversations that we learned we may have something else besides just a short film, which we initially were going to use as a launching pad for us in our careers individually as you know, a writer-director and me as a producer. So it was there that we really started to learn that you know, we may have something really great that we should try to tackle while we have this interest surrounding the project. It was within the touring of the festivals with the short film that we really started to gain access inside the industry that we had never had before. Because a lot of, a lot of people within the industry are always looking for you know, new and fresh talent and emerging talent. And a lot of times that can be found within short film programs. So you never really know who your audience is. And after we made the short, I was getting phone calls from TV networks and from a lot of studios and agents inquiring about the filmmaker, inquiring about, you know, if there was something bigger that we were discussing. And, you know, that, that sort of gave me access to getting into, you know, some of the rooms that you learn about in college that you don't know how to get into. This was one access point for us was sort of having this tool, which was the short film to be sort of our calling card. Listening to the validation role that festivals can play in an insecure industry, always looking for proof systems, I asked Jason whether festivals can help persuade producers like himself that a previously unheralded filmmaker was indeed the real deal, one of those distinctive voices that everyone is so ardently chasing. Can festivals turn that abstraction into something more concrete and tangible? Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think it's you know, another very high compliment when someone can remember seeing a short film even years after it had played. And an example of that was I remember seeing at AFI Fest, uh, Michelle Morgan, who is a wonderful writer, director, and actor. And uh, I remembered the short very, very well. And later on throughout the year, she had worked on developing a feature and that's not based on the short, but 
uh, was reminiscent of the style and tone of it. And that movie was LA Times, which was premiered at Sundance this year. And when she was going out and sort of putting together the feature that she wanted to get made, sitting with her watching the short, you immediately understand what she's going to do. And it's in that that you want to invest, you know, your time, your energy, your resources and anything you can, because you believe in what she's trying to do and how clear of a voice that she is. And that for us was why we really wanted to work with her because we felt that she had that special ingredient of telling a story in a different way that if anything would just stand out, that people would resonate with people that people would remember. And I, I you know, as you know, probably, from, you know, being critics, but in talking with critics and journalists who had seen the movie uh, in all different phases and even at Sundance, you know, weeks, months after, I remember, you know, some of my journalists and critic friends were at South by Southwest and, and, and other festivals. And they said this was the one that really resonated with them. This is the one they remembered. And I thought that was a really complimentary and really great. And sometimes that doesn't match the business side of it, but you kind of have to think about what are your goals and, you know, and in getting involved with specific projects. Talking of the business side of things, I asked Jason for his take on the current marketplace that his film projects are to compete in. If storytelling invention is the special source that he looks for in filmmakers, what are the ingredients that distributors he sells to look for in order to clinch the deal in a world where screen clicks can count for more than torn ticket stubs? And what impact does that have on his decision-making when it comes to packaging and budgeting his projects? You know, the one recurring theme that we hear is cast, cast, cast. And, you know, that's sort of a consideration that I think producers are, you know, very conscious of because distributors alike say that's what the consumer also thinks about as well when sort of clicking through and how do you stand out on VOD platforms because it's, it's very hard to break out in theatrical and it does help drive sometimes the VOD business but really it's the VOD and then the licensing after that you're finding a majority of the income in the independent landscape and it's very hard to figure out how you're going to get that click versus another film that um, that's also out at that time. And I think Netflix and the Amazons and the Hulus and the streaming services are helping with that because they're coming in and licensing some content, but I don't know how long they're going to be licensing secondary content versus originals. So it's, it's changing every, every year you're seeing a change in how distributors are buying films and how they're distributing them and how the consumer is watching them. So, um, I don't know if cheaper is better sometimes because you may not have that sometimes production value that gets you that better opportunity. But sometimes you may you may need to make it less expensive because you don't know. It's too hard to quantify what the upside is going to be anymore. And therein lies the rub in this uncertain environment film producers find themselves right now. The diminishing likelihood of theatrical returns for all but a small handful of breakout films at the box office has put pressure on producers to keep their budgets as low as possible, in the hopes of a payoff from video on demand. But in order to stand out in that VOD world of infinite choice, you need the kind of visibility that name actors and costly spectacles can provide. How do you thread that needle in terms of casting? One big name with massive appeal? Several recognisable ones, each of whom might appeal to a different audience constituency? Or a talented unknown, who's so perfect for that role, she might lend the film all the pizzazz it needs? And I think it's, it's a very unfair way of, this, of how this business works. And, you know, trying to break the mold is sort of been something we work on. But 
at the end of the day, you answer to, a, you know, to the audience, to the consumer of how they're going to buy the movie. For us, you know, we like, we like actors in the same way, like filmmakers, if we find that they're talented and they're perfect for the role, then they should be in the movie. And that's kind of the end of it. But, you know, you have to now listen to what distributors are saying, because ultimately you're in their hands. And, you know, they answer, of course, to an audience and they are able to look at more specific numbers and understanding how things are working and why they're working and then translating it back to you as a filmmaker. So I don't know if there's a one answer in terms of what the cast is and how many pieces of the specific, um, you know, more name recognizability type actors that you need for your film. But I'm hoping, and it sounds like there are some of the more streaming type businesses who already have the built-in audience that they're, you know, that they look at sort of great performances, great actors in great performances, you know, and using that as a basis to whether or not it's right for their platform than it being that more, you know, familiar face that they know that there's a core audience that will always go towards that actor. And wouldn't that just be the perfect world? A distribution nirvana in which platforms shout to their customers, hey, watch this because the performance is great, rather than because the film fills certain genre expectations, or because we all know the contours of a certain star's face. Exactly. And I think that and a lot of times, you know, the quality doesn't meet, uh, even though it had that, you know, that that familiar actor that, you know, you love to see in, in that role. Sometimes the quality doesn't meet that movie. So, you know, whereas for the streaming and for some of the other newer digital services that are, are coming up, I feel like it's if you see a, a great film with quality performances that they, you know, say, you know, an A24 does this, of course, in a really and they're doing it in a very, you know, incredible way. And uh, they're saying we'll help, you know, prove the talent instead of, you know, putting somebody else in because uh, they bring in a, a certain recognizability. So it's, it's slowly happening. I think A24 is paving the way for that. And uh, Amazon and a few others that are really starting to say, hey, you know, we're going to put our stamp on this movie and that's enough to prove the quality of the film than a specific actor. Now, of course, the ability to persist with one's casting and creative choices can only really happen if you have the financial support of like-minded patrons willing to go to battle with you. In Jason's case, that person is Paul Finkel, also from Michigan, who had enjoyed success at his family's property management company when he decided to pursue his real passion in life and invest in his first feature film, Brighter Star. Even in the family business, he demonstrated his entrepreneurial chops by seeking out new developments rather than carrying on simply acquiring or managing existing properties, as the company had been doing since 1979. It's a developmental trait that Paul has carried over into the filmmaking world, where he soon gravitated to playing an initiating role as producer, rather than a passive role as financier. This business acumen has proved an invaluable asset, says Jason. I knew early on that I wanted to find someone like-minded who was passionate about filmmaking, passionate about the arts and entertainment, and I knew that I would the only way to find that person is to sell them, you know, on my passion as well and how passionate I am about doing all of these things. And, and um, I just started talking with a lot of people in between this concept of going from the short length to the feature length of my first film. And Paul, you know, my producing partner of many years now is incredibly like-minded and creative and smart and, you know, understood that, you know, the business of filmmaking is, it's not just, there's, there's no numbers. It's not just uh, algorithms. And it's a lot about, you know, really supporting something and getting people to support you and in turn support the project. 
and Paul did that for me, and Paul and I together did that, sort of our efforts in getting the first movie made and going out and telling our story and saying, you know, we're supporting this movie and this filmmaker, you should support us as as producers um, who also support this movie and filmmaker. And that's kind of how we joined forces to launch our company and kind of how we still stand today. Paul came from another business altogether um, with deep, you know, deep rooted passion in, in filmmaking, which is how we spent you know, many, many months in our early days, just talking about movies and, and the business and what I thought was incredibly beneficial for me individually growing a business uh, and being an entrepreneur along with you know, a producer was that he was able to look at it from an outside perspective and really be able to weigh in on, you know, on some of the business and some of the creative from an audience perspective uh, in terms of making movies and how to get the business together and how to raise money and how to structure things and uh, creatively kind of what, you know, an audience, why audiences want what they want. And so that's kind of was so beneficial for us. And that's kind of how we began our conversations and just found that, we complemented each other very, very well. And, you know, like every filmmaker trying to get their first movie off the ground and producers going out and raising money for their first movie, you know, we met with everybody. And and I think part of it is that it, it's, you know, like the restaurant business and a lot of other types of business, it's a very high, high risk, high reward type business. And it has its own special special elements about it that are different than other businesses. I remember talking with restaurateur early on who, you know, about investing and getting involved in movies. And Paul was saying to him that, you know, when you have a restaurant, you have X amount of tables, you can do X amount of covers a night. And if you do that hundred percent, you're maxed out, you know, and in the film business, there is no ceiling to your great potential. And, you know, I don't think it's ever fair to sell potential investors on, sort of the comps that are out there in terms of the, the ones that actually do that and break, you know, the invisible ceiling and really just have tremendous success. But that's, that is what's so exciting about the film business is, is the reach, you know, we're in a restaurant, you're in one city, you know, in the film business, you're, you're in many cities, you're in many countries throughout the world. So I think it's that level of excitement in, in the financial space, but also creatively that, you know, if you have an amazing dish in a restaurant, like, you know, only so many customers will ever get to experience, you know, and if you come up, if you come up with a beautiful movie, your potential for people to see that, to see your hard work and this labor of love and this story and these characters, that potential is endless. You know, you have the entire world at your fingertips. And I think that's what's so exciting as a filmmaker and, you know, also uh, in on the business side of it. Once they had got the menu right in terms of what stories they wanted to tell at Storyboard, I wondered what Jason considered the hardest part of his job when stirring the pot on those projects. Just like when it comes to raising money, you're always mining for the right partner. And I think in the early days uh, of development, which is what we spend a majority of our time on, it's finding you know the right people early on. And I think that you know it's when you when you have the right team, you build that foundation then you're, you're good to go. But you've got to start right. So I think it's just taking your time and sort of finding the right people, the right mixture of ingredients to get the movie made. And that's sort of what consumes you know, a majority of our time here is finding the right script and the right director that, that is you know, for that script 
and finding, you know, the right budget level, finding the right financier. And it's, that's always hard. But I think that's kind of the exciting part. Of, as you see it start to come alive, you know, packaging, it, uh, it becomes super exciting. And, and then you can kind of see, you know, hopefully it moving into production. But that's sort of always been our, our hard part is finding the, the right mixture of elements that we feel is the perfect combination. And, and a lot of it is, you know, it's an emotional part process too, because it's, this is, it's not as simple as, well, going back to, we have a lot of food analogies today, maybe I'm just hungry, but it's going back to making, you know, making a dish, it's not following a recipe code, you know, it's a very, it's an emotional process, it's a long process. And it, just like it's hard to find algorithm, it's, it's hard to find the right people uh, but when you find them, you have the real opportunity to create magic and you love working with them and you love what you're doing. And that will then show and when you're talking with financiers and that will then show when you're making the movie and, you know, when you're going out and trying to find a distributor for the film. So I think it all starts at the very beginning. And that's always the hardest part for us is just finding everything and putting it together and making sure it all kind of works. If making movies is indeed akin to starting a business, and there are many good reasons for making such comparisons, then producers might want to ask themselves why so many of them don't follow the same template. No one starting a restaurant, say, would dream of doing so without letting the local world know about its existence well ahead of time. You want a successful opening night, and then hope the word of mouth and buzz sustains you for the weeks and months ahead. Should pre-marketing and PR be a component of the film development process too, I asked. I think that's, that's, a, that's, that's great, and that's, that is something that's incredibly valuable. And... I think that it's absolutely necessary. Just like a startup, you have to figure out how much cash before you go out and raise your full round of money, how much cash you're able to put up initially to do all of that research. But I think it's, it's incredibly important. And I think if you're able to do it, the value comes even further when you're talking with financing, because then they understand where, how you got to where you are, how you figured that this was the, the right place to budget the film. And if you, that you've thought through who your core demo is and how they're going to get the movie to them and who the distributor is. And, you know, it's not like, it's not just let's make a movie, go to a film festival, hopefully sell at a film festival and get distribution. You know, I think that going the route that you're talking about is a lot more thoughtful. And if you have the resources to do it, to test or anything like that, it's incredibly valuable. And I think, you know, for us, it's something that we definitely consider every time, we think about what's, what is the trailer going to look like? What is the poster going to look like? Who's the audience going to be? And, and, where, and what medium are we going to get it to them? And that helps us think all the way back to casting, working on the scripts, you know, finding the right partners for it. And um, I think producers should be utilizing any tools they have that help them get there than, than just, uh, you know, the festival model, which is a lot of people's models, which is a very tough model. As for its own model, Storyboard is now venturing into brand new territory, both in terms of film genre and also entertainment sector. Coming soon to midnight screens, for example, and late night viewing binges at home, is an unsettling film from Storyboard about a young woman who returns to her childhood home, only to be trapped inside the house by forces that may have driven her own mother to commit a terrible murder years ago. Yes, it's a horror film. So the next release we have is a film called darkness rising which we sh which we shot here in la with no incentive and ifc is releasing the movie on june 30th so that movie is a 
it's just a, it's a fun ride. You know, Austin, who's an amazing filmmaker, came from commercials and a lot of other types of storytelling. He's passionate about the genre. He's passionate about telling stories like this. And we said, let's let's do it. We want to we want to do this with you. And we just made a second movie, and we're talking about his third movie right now. That is our first horror film, and it's it's super fun. You know, you get to work with visual effects, and you get to work with monster effects, and all these really cool tools that were allowed us to do something different, which was great. So we're always open to different genres. And then uh, just outside of the film, Storyboard is, uh, is part of the producing team of a Broadway show that's on Broadway right now called Indecent, which is an incredible play by uh, an amazing playwright who won a Pulitzer, and her name is Paula Vogel, and that play is currently on Broadway. So if you're in New York, try to check that one out. And how does the world of Broadway, with its angel investors, compare to movies, I wondered? Can filmmaking learn from the experience of mounting a show, or vice versa? Oh, we, we need a six-hour podcast for that one. But a lot, a lot of similarities, and what I loved about this show the most is that it's, uh, it's, pas- it's, it's, it's actually exactly what I was saying about film, but this show specifically is about passion for the arts, passion for telling a story and, and you know, sticking with it. And this film spans many, you know, years. And today we just got a, a Drama Desk nomination. So we've been really quite lucky and fortunate with the, um, the amazing reviews and reception that we've gotten so far from the show. You've been listening to Jason Potash from Storyboard. The play he produced, Indecent, is inspired by the true events surrounding the controversial 1923 staging of God of Vengeance, a landmark play that presented the first same-sex kiss, in this case between two women, in Broadway history, before it was shut down by police. Six weeks after it opened at the Apollo Theatre on 42nd Street, the entire cast, along with the producer and the show's manager, were arrested on grounds of indecency. It's difficult to imagine any play, or film for that matter, being considered profane enough today to attract the Vice Squad. But as Jason points out, we can certainly relate to the sacrifices and sheer endurance needed to stay true to our creative visions. More and more, such fiercely independent bold work is what it takes to make a noise in the current entertainment landscape. And more and more, that uncompromised work is the product of a younger generation of artists battling to get their first and follow-up films made. That some are still able to do so in a film industry that has become more conservative in its greenlighting habits is a testament to companies like Storyboard that put so much stock in new talents. One of the reasons that Storyboard likes to support filmmakers in the early stages of their career trajectories is its desire to build ties with emerging artists that will sustain during their maturing years as storytellers. Establishing that collaborative relationship during the earlier stages of a filmmaking career as James Seamus did, for example, with Ang Lee, and Christine Vachon with Todd Haynes, gives indies perhaps the best chance of emulating the old Hollywood studio model of maintaining a stable of talents long enough to ride their careers through their inevitable hot and cold streaks. Both talents and their patrons benefit from that mutual support system. Artists are given room to experiment. Companies know that their development work will eventually pay off with a breakout. And as you chew on that, I'll leave it there for this week's podcast. Next time you will hear from Filmonomics at Slated, you'll be getting some more food for thought from Scott Mosier, the producer who is perhaps best known as Kevin Smith's partner in crime. So stay tuned. Thank you.